Welcome to Part of the Family from South Charleston First Church of the Nazarene in South Charleston, West Virginia. I'm Paul Neal, one of the staff pastors here at SC First. In today's episode, we'll share the message from our Sunday morning service on April 3rd. Then Greg Beheller, Pastor Jenny Miller, and I will take a few more minutes to dig even deeper into the message. Just by listening in, you're part of the family too. This past Sunday, Pastor Ken Estep continued his series leading us up to Easter with a message titled Jesus, the Word. If you've already listened to the sermon, you can skip forward a little more than 33 minutes for the discussion. Now, without further ado, let's listen to Pastor Kent's message. We're going to continue our series on the names of Jesus, and I'm going to begin by taking you down kind of a a trip down memory lane, if you will. I mean, it's 2022. uh, We know that. But what this has brought to my mind is that it's now been 35 years since I graduated Mount Vernon Nazarene College. 35 years. It's a long time ago. A long time ago. Also reminded that that also means that in this same summer, that same summer, 1987, I married my bride. And so we celebrate our 35th anniversary uh, this year as well. And I just can't believe all that, right? I can't be this old. I cannot be this old. Um, in thinking about Mount Vernon and, and graduating from there, it kind of called, called me back to the campus, and, and many things have changed about that campus in 35 years as well. I mean, we went to the barn. We went to the barn. We went to the barn. You know, we called it that because that's what it once was, a barn. They once actually played their athletic events in the barn at Mount Vernon Nazarene College. And when I got there, they had turned it into, you know, the refreshment stand, if you will. And that was the only place really on campus that you could hang out to get some pizza and popcorn and that kind of thing. They've now replaced that with a multi-million dollar student union building. And so things have changed greatly. The very simple multi-purpose building, the steel building, they fancifully named that the MPB, the multi-purpose building. That's what it was called. That's what it was. And that was our center of worship. Now that, of course, happens in the chapel with its carpeted floors, its theater seating, and its stained glass. Again, so many things have changed. The workout room at Mount Vernon Nazarene College is no longer the broom closet off the Cougar Gym with a few free weights just kind of haphazardly thrown in in and around the place. No, it's now a 50 by 50 room with elliptical machines and treadmills and computerized biking, everything that you can imagine. A lot of things have changed about the campus. Uh, Personnel has changed as well. Many have died in these past 35 years. I mean, they were old when I was there, so you can imagine how old they would be now, right? So we've said goodbye to some folks. Religion professor Dr. David Kuby, Pioneer Hall uh, head resident Noda McCall, and former dean of students John Donahoe. Maybe some of those names are familiar to you. And then uh, just about a year ago, another died uh, that was on staff when I was there. His name was Dr. Lincoln Stevens. Dr. Lincoln Stevens. I mean, what a great professor name, right? It just sounds prestigious, right? It just fits. He was the chair of the philosophy department when I was there. And at a liberal arts college, as Mount Vernon Nazarene University is, it required a philosophy course for a well-rounded education. My Christian education minor meant a couple more courses, courses in that arena. And so my path and Dr. Stevens' path crossed, one might say, too frequently uh, in, my, in my view. It was about 10 years ago, I guess it was, that I saw Dr. Stevens for the first time in what had been a very long time. I was over there, I was serving on the board of trustees at Mount Vernon, and uh, they had elected a new president, Dr. Hen- Henry Spalding, and he continues to be the president now. 
And so I was over there to march in a parade of faculty and trustees and other dignitaries on this uh, occasion. But when I saw Dr. Stevens, you know, it was kind of just a cold chill ran up my back. I mean, immediately transported back in time to that philosophy class. Uh, maybe you can easily discern that philosophy was not my favorite course, and I did myself no favors taking that introduction to philosophy course as a freshman and also as a night course. I don't know if you've ever taken a night course, but you think it's a good idea to ta- at the time because it's going to be once a week that you have to endure this course and that kind of thing. But when it starts at 6.30 and you go till 9.30 at night and you're talking about philosophy, it really wasn't, wasn't a great thing. Uh, and, you know, you're trying to stay awake as you contemplate questions like, can God make a rock so big he can't pick it up? And I'm sitting there the whole time just wondering, is I don't know an, a, an appropriate answer for something like that? I don't know and I don't really care. I could even say it that way. Anyway, back to my story. Because of the occasion where I was over at Mount Vernon, everyone was dressed in their robes of academia, right? Dr. Stephen was, was in his doctoral garb, his velvet barred robe, his dark blue hood symbolizing his PhD in philosophy, and his sleeves were lined with the scarlet and white of the Ohio State University. I said it again. These bold colors, these barred sleeves, this very lofty stuff, I was dressed up too. I had my own little robe on, right? My garb, though, was far less less eye-catching than his. Uh, First, uh, you know, and and I guess that's that's as it should be, right? First, I, I don't have the degrees he's got. And secondly, the comparison was only made worse by the color that symbolizes the business administration degree that I do possess. Can anyone guess what that color is? That color is drab. Drab, really. It's, it's hard to impress anyone with the color drab. Couldn't they have at least chosen taupe or tan or even light brown? I mean, go to Crayola, get some ideas. But drab is just a terrible color. But that's what it is, drab. I've done some research on, on the designation of these colors to the varying fields of academic study, and I really couldn't locate anything. But in my way of thinking, drab is earthy, it's down and dirty, it's in the details, it's very practical, factual, plain kind of stuff. And honestly, that tends to be the way I think and want to think about most things. I want to boil them down to the basics, and really sometimes that's business, it's black and white, it's down to the basics. I mean, that's what I want, tell me what happened, tell me when it happened, tell me how it happened, tell me who it affected, tell me why it why it all occurred? Tell me what what you think when you what what t- <laughs> tell me what you think we need to do in response to all of this. But keep it plain and simple. Just give me the facts. In introducing Jesus to the world, two gospel writers, Matthew and Luke, take this very earthy approach. Uh, that, that's not to say that. There still wasn't a lot of miracle in their stories. There, there was. But they did what they could to make the inexplicable understandable. So in their telling of this story, they gave us family histories. And they told us about and introduced us to Mary and Joseph. And they talked of encounters with innkeepers and shepherds and wise men. I mean, I, 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 wouldn't, call it, I wouldn't call their stories drab for sure. But in comparison to John's approach, 
maybe we would say light brown because in comparison to those two, John takes a bold blue approach, a very philosophical one, much different than Matthew and Luke as he tells this story of Jesus Christ. And in this story, in this story, he gives us another name of Jesus that I want to focus our attention on today. Let me read from John's Gospel, chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name... He gave the right to become the children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or of a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning Him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because He was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. So John, listen to that telling of the story. John begins very differently, intentionally so. Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience familiar with the kingdom of God language, and so he employed that frequently in his telling of Jesus' story. Luke's primary audience was Gentiles, so he targeted them with stories of Jesus reaching beyond the historically called with the good news. So he was speaking to the down and out, to the very lowly. John was writing to a different audience. He was, he was writing during a time when the philosophy of Hellenism was in vogue, and so his language included terms of logic and light and life. John told God's story to the deep thinkers of his time in ways that grabbed their attention and intrigued their thinking as he introduced Jesus as the Word, as the Logos. Now, that term, that, that, that way of understanding Jesus as Logos, or the word, may not be especially clear to us, but it was full of meaning to them. And it actually bridged the ancient Jewish understanding of God and the import of of God's word, its wisdom with Greek philosophy, and its concentration on on the order uh, of the universe, the cosmos, and the power that was necessary to create the universe and to continue to maintain it. And so Jesus, as the Logos, the Word, He embodied all of these meanings and so much more. So the Logos is God's truth proclaimed. The Logos is God's eternal Word in action. The Logos is the personification 
of God's wisdom. The Logos is the language of God lived out in historical expression. All of that describes exactly who Jesus Christ was and is. Theologically, we call it the incarnation. John said it this way, the Word became flesh. Now, again, that's far from explainable. That the creator of all things also was created. That God clothed himself with humanity. That Jesus could be both fully God and fully man. Now, I can't prove that to you today. I can't make that completely understandable. Because, listen, that's anything but drab stuff. I mean, that's blue, lofty, big stuff. In fact, I would want you to know today, when I said I'm not trying to prove him to you today, I would want you to know that I'm not trying to prove him to you this morning or to reduce him to your or to my level of understanding. If I could do that, if I could fully do that, then that would make him less than God. Evelyn Underhill has written it this way, and I think appropriately so. If God, if God were small enough to be understood he would not be big enough to be worshipped. God were small enough to be fully understood, he would not be big enough to be worshipped. The Bible tells us plainly that faith is necessary. Faith is a requirement for us to be pleasing to God. Now, again, when I talk about faith in that way, I want to make sure you understand that faith doesn't mean that I've stopped thinking Faith doesn't mean that I've stopped pondering or wondering about the ways of God. In fact, over and over again, the Bible talks to us about God demonstrating miraculous things in order to convince people to believe. Our faith is not unfounded. That's not at all what I'm saying. But I'm saying that we can't fully explain God. There are some things that we still have to accept by faith. And I think this is a healthy endeavor. As we continue to do that, no matter how long we've been walking with Christ, If we continue to explore the questions in our mind, God meets us in those places. That's an ongoing search that should continue in our lives. But we recognize that God's ways are mysterious, that sometimes God is inexplicable and and to a great degree beyond us and, 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 and what we think ought to occur. And John seems to understand that. In fact, I I believe that that some of the ways of God remained. Uh, unexplainable to John himself. In fact, and it may seem a little bit strange at this point, but I think it's a faith-building, amazing, a God thing to me to think about these initial words that are shared by the, the Apostle John as he writes this. John, you remember, was a common, everyday fisherman of Galilee, and yet he is the one who penned these, some of the most profound, lofty, deep blue words in all of Scripture. And to me, John's very words, his unique argument, his incredibly poetic and powerful language serve as convincing proof of God's inspiration of this, his word. I just don't believe that John or any other human being was capable of coming up with this on their own, not without the Spirit's guidance and leading. And so through the Spirit, John is convinced that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. That's why John's story begins with beginnings. He writes, he writes there in verses 1 and 2, In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. It's no accident, I don't believe, 
that John's initial words mirror the, those words contained in Genesis 1.1. And so these introductory words, if you will, connect Jesus with his, with his creation and in his coexistence with the Father as the all-powerful, universe-forming, order-giving creator God. And listen, if you, if you missed it, uh, it, it, there's confirmation, there's complementary language that exists in Genesis as well. When we read from Genesis 1 and 26, it says this, Then God said, Let us make human beings in our image to be like ourselves. And so you hear that, the, the personhood of God is Trinitarian. This is plural language, if you will, at this point. One God in three persons. And so these, these texts really just mesh together. They are connected in this idea that Jesus is God and that the word Jesus, and this is point number one, the word Jesus is life-giving. He is life-giving. John said it this way, the word gave life to everything that was created. Now listen, I don't know where you stand on your view as to the created order of things and whether you are one who believes that the, that the earth is 6,500 years young or 4.6 billion years old. And could I say it really doesn't matter to me. I know some people want to draw very hard and fast lines on, on, on those positions and in those issues. I would just let you know the Nazarene church does not do that. It says that in the beginning God created. How God created, we leave a lot of room for how God has created things. Now some want to say, you know, if you don't believe that part of the Bible, then you can't believe the rest of the part of the Bible. Well, that's an understanding. I do believe that part of the Bible. I certainly believe that part of the Bible. And everyone who has my view on, on such things believes that part of the Bible, but we can understand that part of the Bible in, in different kind of, a different kind of writing style as, as, as compared to one that was demonstrating and saying exactly how God created. So that little tidbit of information. So anyway, it doesn't matter to me what you believe in, in that regard. What does matter to me is that you believe that, that it was in fact God who created all things. That is important. That, that, that creation resonates from Him, that all of creation came from Him, and the biggest thing that God created when He created is life itself. And the Word, the Bible tells us, the Word is the source of all life. All life originates in Him. He alone provides it. In fact, in the book of Acts, it tells us that He Himself, speaking of Jesus, gives life and breath to everything. Later in John's Gospel, the Word, Jesus said of Himself, I am the way and the truth and the life. In John 10 and 10, Jesus spoke these words, I have come that they all might have life, and that they might have it to the full. That's what Jesus is, and that's what he originates. It is life. Uh, we must ask, well, what is this life uh, that, that uh, Jesus give and, and it gives and that John is writing about? Because we all know some folks, right, who are living, but they're really not living, right? They're living, but they're not experiencing the fullness of life. They're just putting in their time. Uh, maybe, maybe you've heard people talk about you know, and asking the question, you know, what am I going to do when I retire? And it so often sounds like, and I'm getting closer to that age myself, but it often sounds like that they expect to be through with the serious issues of life once they reach 65. People seem to think of life in, in, in the Spirit as a one-time thing. Once you've got it, you keep it. 
So many people think that life in the Spirit is a one-time thing. Once you've got it, you keep it. But a true spiritual life requires work and constant growth. There is no retirement age in Christianity. I was waiting to see if you were going to say amen. Listen to the observation of Soren Kierkegaard. He writes it this way. Uh, he, He says, in a written examination, this is good, so listen carefully. In a written examination where the students are allotted four hours, it is neither here nor there if an individual student happens to finish before the time is up or if they use the entire time. Here the task is one thing, the time is another. But when the time itself is the task, it becomes a fault to finish before the time is up. Suppose a man were given the task of entertaining himself for an entire day, and he finishes up as early as noon. Then his speed would not be meritorious, so it is when life constitutes the task. To be finished with life before life has finished with one is not to have finished the task. Can I say it one more time? To be finished with life before life has finished with one is not to have finished the task. We have been given life. We've been given life to be used to fulfill a purpose. Life has meaning. John, as he is writing here, he talks about life using the term Zoe, Zoe life. It's not bios life. It's, in other words, it's not biological life. It's not natural existing Uh, life that eventually ends in death, but Zoe life, to which John refers to, is to life as God offers it. It's the Word breathing life into us. It's life experienced in and with Jesus Christ, complete, not lacking in anything. It's of superior quality. It's purposeful. It remains significant. It is eternal. That is the life that we are asked to enter into now. Do you get that too? Sometimes we talk about eternal life and we're talking about it in heaven. When does eternal life start? It begins now with Jesus Christ in relationship with Him. And so it's ongoing. It goes on into eternity forever. That's the life that we are called into in Jesus Christ. And the Word, Jesus, is life-giving. Number two, the Word is light shining. John says there in verses 4 and 5, Um, that he says that his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. This light to which John is referring is illumination, it's revelation, it's understanding, it's wisdom. And this is provided for us as we look at the life of the word Jesus Christ. He, through his life, has shown us, he has demonstrated to us the heart and the unchanging ways of the Father. Jesus has made God the Father known to us. And so the Word, Jesus, is ever consistent. He is ever embodying the spoken and written Word of God. There is no variance. There are no shadows. There is perfect unity here. And so whatever God the Father has said, whatever God the Father has thought, whatever God is, Jesus has illuminated God, His ways, His wisdom, perfectly and completely to us. Uh, in, in the book, Just Like Jesus, Max Licato writes it this way of, of, uh, of translating Jesus perfectly. 
he, he writes that there were a few occasions in Brazil where he was serving as a translator for an English speaker. And so he stood before the audience complete with the message, or the, the speaker, I'm sorry, stood before the audience complete with the message. Max Licato stood at his side equipped with the language. Uh, Max goes on to say, my job was to convey his story to the listeners. I did my best to allow his words to be spoken through me. I was not at liberty to embellish or to subtract. When the speaker gestured, I gestured at his volume. As his volume increased, so did, so did mine. When he got quiet, I did too. When he walked on this earth, he goes on to say, Jesus, the Word, was translating God all the time. When God got louder, Jesus got louder. When God gestured, Jesus gestured. He was so in sync with the Father that he could declare, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And so Jesus has shown us perfectly who God is. To use the words of Paul, it started when God said, Light up the darkness and our lives filled up with the light as we saw and understood God. How? In the face of Christ, all bright and beautiful. And now, if we are to experience life, we must walk in the light of God's Word, God's wisdom. And so there's no lack of references here either. Look at Ecclesiastes 2 and 13. Solomon, as he was searching for the meaning of life, in the book of Ecclesiastes wrote, I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The psalmist wrote, Thy word, we've, we sung it this, we've, we've sung it this morning, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Jesus, the word, is mind-illuminating. He gives moral insight, spiritual vision, understanding, and He is the light of wisdom in our blackened world. But it's here... It's here that all of us face a choice. We face a choice to follow and believe on Him or to reject Him. The NIV reads this way, The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not understood it. The darkness has not understood it or understood Him. Now that wording, that might lead us to a false conclusion, a faulty conclusion. If, if, if not understood in not understood, there, there, there's, no, there's no fault, right? If someone doesn't understand, then sometimes we wouldn't hold them accountable. We wouldn't make them responsible. But that's not a great interpretation of the word understood there. That's not a right understanding. It's important to note that the verb used here of not understanding is a description of a man who chooses ignorance over knowledge. So it's not just a lack of understanding. It's, it's not just, hey, I don't get this. It's a choice that says, I'm choosing ignorance over knowledge. And so the verb implies an unwillingness to seize an opportunity. One commentator has written about it this way. It describes a person who is offered a full ride to a prestigious school, but spends his time skipping classes and getting drunk. It's a clear decision. So we've got this opportunity to understand who Jesus is, to receive the light of God's wisdom, but we put up a blockade and we avoid that kind of understanding. We flee and we go in a different direction. It's a, it's a non-attempt. 
It's an idea that I don't need that. And so it's a choice between God's ways and our ways. It's his wisdom or our wisdom. It's walking in light or choosing to walk in darkness. In spite of what the Bible says and states so clearly, there are still who, some who contend that, that whatever God is sharing in his word is relative. It's not absolute truth. I talked about some of this last week, that there's, that, you know, everything changes. There's no pure light. There's no foundational wisdom. Again, I spoke about these things last week. There's a great illustration, illustration shared by a, a, bi, a biblical apologist, and he, he talks about um, the fact that we uh, sometimes dupe ourselves in, into believing that some things are just all movable, that everything's a moving part, that there are no absolutes. He talks about, again, I'm talking about The Ohio State University again. There's a building on their campus called the Wexner Center, and... Um, it, it, it was constructed very diff- differently. Newsweek branded this building, and I'm quoting from them, America's first deconstructionist building. Its white scaffolding, red brick turrets, and Colorado grass pods evoke a double take, but puzzlement only intensifies when you enter the building. For once inside, you, you encounter stairways that go nowhere, pillars that hang from the ceiling without purpose, and angled surfaces configured to create a sense of vertigo. The architect, we are informed, designed this building to reflect life itself, as he described life itself, senseless and incoherent and demonstrating the capriciousness of the rules that organize the built world. So everything is moving. Everything is random. Nothing can be counted on. This this theologian when this idea was explained to him he had one question of this builder of this building he said did he do the same thing with the foundation and he got that very response they started laughing did he do this very same thing with the foundation the laughter demonstrated the double standard of our uh, that our deconstructionist espouse and that is precisely the double standard of relativism, this world, world's ever-changing morality. It's possible to dress up and romanticize our bizarre experiments in social restructuring while disavowing truth or absolutes. But one dares not play such deadly games with the foundations of good thinking, morality, truth, God's wisdom, the Word. Jesus himself is light, he is wisdom, he is understanding, he is truth. Point number three, the word is also love unfailing. Listen to John 1 and 14. The word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. Of course, the culminating purpose of Christ's incarnation was his crucifixion. Only an enfleshed word could hang on a tree. Later in John's gospel, the most quoted passage of Scripture is heard. It speaks of God's great love for us. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whosoever believeth on Him should not perish but should have everlasting life. I want to close with this last illustration. It's a pastor who was out doing communion calls. He was taking the elements of communion, and he was visiting other folks. And so he first met with Hazel in the hallway outside the dining room of a nursing home, uh, which had been her residence for several years. He then met with Verena and her daughter in the lobby of her retirement center. She was on her way to an appointment, but he spent those moments with them. 
Finally, he made his way to a lady named Ruth. She was sitting in her room. She was complaining of being cold, and so he adjusted the afghans that were wrapped around her as he tried to cover her feet as well. By his own admission, Ruth was a difficult vi- uh, visit for him because she was struggling with dementia and so many times she didn't even remember him at all. He had been told at one time that Ruth had had a beautiful voice and so he asked her what some of her favorite Christmas carols were. It was the Christmas season when he was visiting and so uh, she couldn't come up with any names. He suggested, what about Away in a Manger? And Ruth, he says, in a voice mostly untouched by her 99 years, began to sing this song. Away in a manger, no crib for his bed. The little Lord Jesus laid down his sweet head. The stars in the sky looked down where he lay. The little Lord Jesus asleep on the hay. She didn't get all the words, but you could hear in her voice her love of this story, which continued to live in her heart. From there, he says, they went on to sing a few other Uh, uh, songs, carols, until she paused and she looked at him. And she said this, she said, you know, if I could just have one more job, I know what it would be. She said, "I, I would like to preach. I would like to preach. And so he asked, if you had that one more job, what would you preach? What would you preach? And then before they shared the sacrament, she said to him, I would, I would preach this. God loves you. And that's about it. God loves you, and that's about it. And then they shared in the sacrament together. Just before that, they sang, Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. That's the resounding message of this morning. To prove his love for us, Jesus, the incarnate word, he laid down his life on a cross for your forgiveness and for mine. This very lofty, high, deep blue God became very earthy and low, flesh-toned. We celebrate Him, the Word today, as we remember His gift of grace to us, which is life-giving, light-shining, and He is love unfailing. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You. We thank You for Your Word to our hearts today. We thank You for Your great gift to us in Jesus Christ, this One who has proven His love for us, There is no greater love than one who is willing to lay down his life for his friends. And that's what Jesus has done for each of us. We thank you and we celebrate you in Jesus' name today. Welcome back to the studio. I'm here with uh, Greg Beheller. Hey, Pastor Paul. Greg, good to have you back with us. And uh, a first-time podcast guest, Pastor Jenny Miller. Uh, Jenny, welcome. Hello. Great to be here. And now, Jenny, I warned you, when we have somebody new on the podcast, we ask them to tell us a little about their SC First story. So what's your SC First story? How'd you end up here? (laughs) (laughs) I don't have any other story to tell. This is my story. I've been here for my entire life, and there's no place else that I would rather be. So... Good enough. That's a great story. And uh, I, I think there's there's several of us that, that share that sentiment about no place else we'd rather be. Um, we are blessed to have a church like this. Um, so Pastor Kent, as you've heard, is continuing his series on the names of Jesus, uh, leading us up to Easter, which is just at the point we're recording this, a week and a half away. Um, so uh, this past one was Jesus the Word um, out of the Gospel of John. 
Um, just I, as I've said, I think probably every time you know, we, we've talked about the names of God and now the names of Jesus, I'm just loving this series as it's, it just dives into all these different aspects of, of, of who Christ is and subsequently who we are. And so uh, I, I love this one. Um, what, what jumped out at you guys? Uh, what, what, what's your, what's your main points here to, as we start talking? Well, I guess I can start us off yeah. just by saying that. I love, well, I'm a nerd, <laughs> and I love to think about the differences in the Gospels, and John's Gospel stands out, you right. know, as philosophical, and really, I don't know that I ever really understood it. When we say Jesus as the Word— and you read the beginning of John's gospel, you kind of associate the the word word right. with the Bible. Right. right. The word of God. We usually, is a, yeah, in that phrase is normally the Bible. But. Yeah. And, and when we go down that road, it takes us completely off what is trying to be communicated here. So right. I'm just really, I was really excited um, about the message. And I remember when I was able to really connect with the first chapter of John with the proper understanding. Right. And you know that emoji where the mind is blown? <laughs> <laughs> I think that that would have been me. Right. Yeah, well, That's so true. I think, um, you know, as an early Christian, you know, I was trying to read the Gospels and try to understand, and I get to John and just like, okay, this is where I jump off because this is deep. This is beyond what is this word. And I, much like you just said, it was that's the Bible, and then things just didn't make sense. And so I'm not sure when it was that I came to understand what that truly meant. Um, but I appreciate Pastor Kent visiting this again. I think it's something that, again, if you read the Gospels, first two seem pretty straightforward. Pastor Kent calls them. Maybe they're the, the drab version of uh, using <laughs> right. his analogy. But then you get to this one, and he uses the word, it's, I think it's blue, uh -huh. and that it's much more philosophical, a, a much different audience. And I think that's important in the context of, <laughs> of, um, of reading this gospel, knowing who the audience is and why this language is used. And um, you can come to just a much deeper understanding, again, of, of, who, of who God is right. and who we are by, by knowing that, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but Jenny, I'm with you. I love that... Um, you know, the, the other three are even referred to, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are the synoptic gospels. You know, they, they, they sort of go together. They tell a lot of the same stories. Over There's a lot of overlap there. And then John just had, oh, uh, we, in one of my Johannine literature courses in college, we used a book called The Maverick Gospel. You know, mm -hmm. he just went in on his own, his own way. Um, and I love that he is so poetic. And, um, and there's just so much you can study in John. The there's the, the phrase that uh, I don't think I've thought about it much since college, but the chiastic parallelism that John uses where he'll tell a story where there's an event and then there's another event and then there's a central event and then there's another event that, that echoes the second event and then there's a final event that echoes the first event. And he constantly sort of does that. If you look at it, it's almost like an hourglass and um, he writes in such a poetic way. And so for him to start out like you were talking about with that, the, the word as not just as uh, as the scriptures or not just as a spoken word, but as the son of God, you know, as Jesus, that it, it is. It's just a, it's a remarkable 
um, sort of ancient poetic thing that tells us a lot at the same time about who Jesus was, that he proceeded from, from, from God. I mean, he was God and yet he proceeded from God. And that, um, so I love that Kent uh, talked about, uh, in, uh, you know, everything that was created was created through him. And, um, I love that, that he took that little sort of side trip uh, about creation, um, because we do get bogged yeah. down sometimes in how did he create? Um, and I love that Kent really made the point, you know, it's, it's not important to us. It, it should not be our central focus of how he created just that he created. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so I love that just before he even got to his main points, just, he was talking about that. So. Yeah, absolutely. And then too, as you're describing this gospel and this writing that is so it's academic, it's philosophical, and yet these words were penned by a first century Galilean right. fisherman. Right. <laughs> and that's not meant to be critical at all of John the writer or John the disciple. But, and, you know, Kent references it definitely in, in his sermon that no human being could pen these kinds of words and, and put right. this understanding of Christ as the word and begin to do it apart from the divine inspiration and the power of the Holy Spirit. So that is so encouraging to me. And even, you know, I think because it can go way beyond anybody in first, you know, in in the first reading or the first 10 readings. Um, But to know that even the author would have been completely taken over by the divine yeah and it's it's encouraging in a sense that you know i'm a hick boy from west virginia can can god use me in the same way i mean and any of us you know that god can uh, and it comes from the idea that you're talking about that he he really had that connection with 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 god and he had that personal experience with jesus and that's where it really comes from i think you know it was like how can i how can I express this the best way possible? God, I need you to flow through me to do this. Cause he wanted his readers to, I think he probably wanted his readers to have at least some form of the experience he had in being one-on-one with Jesus and just to help him understand what that was really like. So sure. yeah, it's, it's uh, that, that's certainly a conversation that could, that could carry on a long time. And there's a lot of great stuff there. Uh, I think I'd, I'm probably will skip to the dessert of the sermon. Really, <laughs> that's totally fine. <laughs> and, and really go to um, what I believe was Kent's final analogy, and just uh, about um, I believe her name was Ruth. Is that correct? I and, think that is what he said. Yeah, uh, talking about um, that time being spent with her, and um, you know that he was one, he was visiting her, I guess, uh, for communion, right, to deliver the mm-hmm. elements, and he, she was one of his. Uh, she was maybe a little tougher than some of the other ones and uh, had some memory issues. And anyway, they go on to have this conversation and he finds out she can sing and he, you know, talks to her about singing and she sings, you know, some beautiful songs and it was uh, amazing. But then he gets into this discussion with her and she says something to the effect that, you know, I think if I had another job, I'd, I'd want to be a preacher. Yeah. And he was like, well, what would you say? And, and she said, God loves you. And that's about it. And I thought, you know, that sermon, this sermon, go through these points it's really pointing us to just how much god loves us through um, the things he does for us he's the giver of life and life giving still right right um, 
he's the light in the darkness, right? That, you know, no matter how bad and how terrible it gets, he's the light in the darkness. He'll always be the light in the darkness. Darkness will never overcome the light, right? And then he is um, uh, the unfailing love. And he proved that by the giving of his son, right? And uh, I don't know. I thought that for me is, as I was reading through those, that analogy, that story just kind of gripped me. It's such a simple, right? It still requires faith mm -hmm. from us, but it's such a simple message and so true that God loves us. Right. And, um, you know, we get to see that through the illustrations and I think the, the separate points that Pastor Kent presents in the sermon. I think you're absolutely right. You know, that Jesus is life-giving, the, the points that he worked through. Um, and I, in, within that point, I love that he, he drew that, that uh, sort of distinction between the bios life, um, not sure, you know, biography or biology, all that sort of thing, where we use that sort of prefix, uh, just a natural existing life. But that's not the kind of life that he's talking about here. And it's the Zoe life, uh, Z-O-E, uh, transliterated into English, that it's, it's a life experienced in and with Christ. I mean, the, how powerful is that? Mm. Um, uh, we, I don't know if we talked here recently or if I was, heard this somewhere else, but we were talking about, you know, our eternal life has already started. And so why not have that, that fulfilling life in him? Um, I, just, I just love that. Uh, um, Pastor Kent used words like, um, you know, a, a life of superior quality, purposeful, right. significant, and eternal, right? Not just, but, but a purposeful life, right? That's significant and not one that's inferior, but of superior quality. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And how often do we sometimes as Christians think that by following Jesus, right. we've, we're giving up something. Right. I mean, yeah. come on. <laughs> yeah. How yeah. much have we diminished the quality of life that God intended for right. humanity. We've reduced yeah. it to a list of do's and do nots. And it's, it's so much more than that. It's, it's, yeah, it is life in him. Um, it is an amazing thing. Yeah, you're right. We've diminished. That's a great word for what well, we tend to do. And I think it certainly is contrasting to what our culture, you know, is, is portraying as a, the life right so yeah. you know i think maybe sometimes if we're not careful we can have those kind of comparison thoughts and think oh you know but we're missing something but not true right we know right that christ is giving us a life that's of superior quality and right and i think you know his second point ties in so well with that that the word is light shining um jesus you know we obviously as a church we we want to get the word out about things we're doing and that's, that's all good. But as Christians our the way we, the way we should advertise is by his light shining through us. And that's certainly the way Jesus was and is, you know, his, his light shines in the darkness. And, um, so his whole point about that was great. And then if we take that and apply it to our own lives with him, you know, when we're living that Zoe life with him, our, do our lives shine? Our, our, do we shine the light in our dark places, you know, um, in our homes and in our places of business and in our friendships? Do we shine a light in the darkness? Um, I think that's that's a vital question for any Christian. You know, in Pastor Kent's um, discussion of that point, he mentions this um, Max Licato. And in and, and, and Max's words, there's this word he uses called uh, he says, when he walked this earth, Jesus, the word, was translating. 
And I thought about Jesus being the translator, right? And that we can be the translator too, to bring Jesus to people. And just thought about the significance of that word that we know the nature of God because Jesus translated everything that God was for us in mm -hmm. living flesh. And now we as Christians get the opportunity to do that too, to the rest of the world, to be the translator of all things right. Christ-like and God-like. Absolutely. And in our culture, I think God has been so wrongly translated, mm. not just by, quote, the world, but in some cases by the church right. and those who have maybe espoused to have the light, but it hasn't shined in such a way that would point people right. toward Jesus. And so I think we have a huge responsibility also, just as Jesus came to represent God rightly when yeah. he was being, when God the Father was being so wrongly represented by the Pharisees, by the religious establishment. Right. Um, we have a huge responsibility to shine light on God the way Jesus illuminated right. him. Yeah, I think that's the challenge, right? The way that Jesus did it. I think sometimes, um, even, you know, myself, sometimes I can, I, you, we hear things where we see things and we want to maybe, um, write that. And maybe that's not always the, the yeah. approach. There's a, another way that Jesus taught us about loving first before we conk people over the head with some truth. Grace <laughs> and, and truth. Right. And so I, I think I have to be reminded of that sometimes that it's, we have to, we have to model Jesus in that, in that fashion when we're bringing the word and, right. and truth to people. Yeah. I think that's an excellent point. Yeah. We, we, and it, it's funny, you know, I was thinking, Jenny, as you were talking about when Jesus came in his time and the, the religious system was, was fouled up. And, and then Greg, you talking about us I, I, and obviously, I mean, I'm biased about our church. I think our, our church does so much right. Um, when we, but churches in general, we, the religious system in general, sometimes we can get it wrong. Mm -hmm. And so I, I'm glad we have a leadership team and pastoral team that really, really strive to get it right and, and put, put God's love first and put put people's relationships with him first. And, um, because that really is ultimately what it's all about is again, to go back to that theme of Zoe, that life in him, if we're not drawing people to that, um, and a lot of what we do is about opening doorways into that experience, you know, upward and celebrate recovery and, and uh, even our Sunday morning services in a lot of ways, because it, it still does come down to a personal decision and a personal relationship with him. So as a church, we open those doors to people to, uh, and hopefully when we open our doors, the light just bursts out. And hopefully when we're out in our communities, our lives shine that light and draw people in so that people want to know, oh, I want what he has. I want what she has. I want that kind of life. Um, it, it's, it's a challenge, but it's, it's one, it's, it's a wonderful challenge that, that Christ gives us. Um, in his last point, uh, the word is love unfailing. Greg, this is what you were talking about, right. um, with, with Ruth, um, it just such a beautiful sort of way to wrap that up. God loves you. And that's about it. Um, I'm reminded of, uh, we had a chaplain when I was at Trevecca and then uh, when I was youth pastoring in Kentucky, he came and spoke at camp. And at that, by that point he had a young niece and she couldn't, she couldn't read. And, um, she was 
three or four, and she uh, she said, uh, "Hey, Uncle Tim, do you want me to read the Bible to you?" And um, he said, "Well, sure." And so they sat down, and she got the Bible, and she opened it a few pages, and she said, "And God," and she flipped a few more, and she said, "And God," and she just continued to do that through the whole Bible. And um, he said, "And you know what? She got it right because that is." that is our lives and God. I mean, everything we face, whatever we're going through and God, because he loves us so much. That's about it. You know, that's, that's sort of the the key there. Um, Jenny, you were talking before we started recording about the passion uh, or no, I'm sorry about the chosen, the the new TV show that's been out for a few years um, and how this made you think of that. Yeah. So, when Kent started preaching on Sunday, that was exactly where my mind went. Episode one of season two, um, for those who are uh, chosen fans, uh, you'll know what I mean. But it deals with John in the aftermath of the resurrection and well, really several years after the resurrection. And he is beginning to attempt to put words to paper that would describe his experience with Jesus. And that episode just beautifully illustrates um, the points that uh, Kent brought out in the sermon. Um, I'm a huge fan of The Chosen. (laughs) Brian and I, I mean, we're card-carrying groupies, and <laughs> we we actually got each other the exact same thing for Christmas, <laughs> chosen sweatshirts. Sweatshirt. I saw his yeah, sweatshirt, the yeah. exact same sweatshirts, um, but it has just opened up um, possibilities. I mean, no, it's not... Uh, an attempt to be scripture, um, but it does an awesome job of representing scripture and then opening up the possibilities of what could have been. Right. And in this particular episode, you know, John is able to recount his time spent with Jesus. And as you watch it, you understand why at the end of the episode, he pins the first sentence of his gospel in the beginning was the word. Right. And you get why um, Jesus is ascribed that particular name. Right. It's so moving, so powerful. Yeah. The, the writers do a fantastic job in that show. And uh, for our listeners, if you haven't checked out this this show, it uh, it's available for free through an app uh, on your smart device, uh, just an app called The Chosen. You can watch uh, both seasons worth of episodes there for no cost. And then there's opportunities for you to to uh, get involved in the in the in the funding of season three, which I think they're about to start shooting right now. Yeah. It's it's intended to be a seven series, uh, seven season series, I believe. Uh, but it's about uh, Jesus and his disciples, and probably as much emphasis on the disciples as with Jesus, which is great because that's who I identify with. I mean, um, I have that relationship with Jesus, but you know, Jesus was fully human and fully God. And yet I, I, I struggle, um, to, to live up to that. And so to see those, um, the disciples in the way that they learned and, and, and failed sometimes, and then came back and, and Jesus was just with them every step of the way. It is just a beautiful, beautifully written series. And again, as Jenny said, it's not intended to be scripture, but it's intended to 
to provide a gateway in, like we were talking mm -hmm. about. It's intended to shine that light in a, in a new way. Um, I'm somebody who, even though I was raised in the church, I'm a little skeptical of Christian entertainment sometimes because it seems like it's not always the most excellent effort. Um, but this is in every way an excellent uh, product that's put out there. And, and it's, it's more than a product. It really is a ministry and an outreach. It's so. moving. Yeah, it's exciting. It it's moving. I mean, I, I think I'm probably using tissues every episode. <laughs> I think so. I mean, and I think it, it, it does something too for me in the sense that it makes me want to revisit parts of scripture and right. to go dig yes. a little deeper in, in, in light of a new, maybe I wouldn't say context, but just a new presentation mm -hmm. that I want to go back and go, Oh, I want to know what happened right before that. And I want to know what happened after that now right. too. And so it's, and, and maybe we've already know that, but it's just, I don't know. It's even for maybe some of us who've been around a while, it definitely, I don't know. It's, it's charges you up and makes you want to, dive in. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, there's an excitement when it comes to scripture that I don't know that I've ever really experienced yeah. anything like this. And exactly as you said, Greg, challenging me to want to, you know, if mm. if the writers of the of the chosen could get there by studying and right. um, creating um, a better understanding of the context well, I can too. And right. I, it's like, I want to have that um, connection with scripture and it's, right. it's just, yeah, it's it flat it's out exciting. So, so yeah, once again, you can, I think it's in the Google play store. It's in the, uh, it's uh, in the Android store. It's in the um, iPhone. I know it's in the iOS Apple store. Cause that's where I got it. Um, and then, there's all sorts of ways to watch it and it's just one it's even on youtube still i think you can yeah. still watch the episodes with some commentary before and after um so again the chosen this wasn't intended to be an, a commercial for the chosen no. we're not we're not we're not being paid by the chosen <laughs> folks we just really really enjoy this show so binge um, jesus that, that's binge <laughs> jesus that's the uh, that's the slogan and we're going to wrap it up with by going back to that point that greg went to right at the beginning you know god loves you and that's about it uh, we would love to have you join us any Sunday. We have services at 9 a.m. and at 11 a.m. with life groups in between and all around those times for adults and, and children and teenagers. Um, if you're listening to this before Palm Sunday, we have an Easter egg hunt coming up this Sunday from 10 a.m. to a little afternoon. Our kids will be hunting for eggs. And then... Uh, Passion Week, uh, the Holy Week, we're going to be releasing special episodes each day, uh, walking through Holy Week. And um, and then on Friday, April 15th at 7 p.m., we have our Tenebrae service, which is a service of shadows that's designed to help us uh, sort of connect emotionally and spiritually to the suffering of Jesus. And then, of course, Easter Sunday, April 17th, we won't have life groups that day, but we will have a, a great service at 9, a great service at 11, and we will have um, uh, an Easter brunch in between so it's just going to be a wonderful day of celebration we hope to hope to see you there come out and join us you can check us out on facebook um give us a call here at the at the church send us an email we'd just love to hear from you and we'd love to have you come visit us if you haven't because you are part of the family <laughs>